0: Guys, this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Fall is in the air. See it in your attire this morning. Always happy to be able for the first time to break out Old Blue, my Linus like security blanket of a jacket. There's some gospel work in my heart to be done there. We'll get after it maybe in this season of small groups. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of our church, responsible for uh, preaching God's word most Sundays. This morning, in continuation of a sermon series that uh, will carry us all the way up through the fall and and up to the season of Advent, Uh, a series entitled, as you see up on the screen behind me, No Other Gospel, a journey through the, the book of Galatians, which we've been at for a couple months now, about halfway through this letter. A letter written to a number of churches that Paul helped to plant in and around the region of Galatia, believed to be one of Paul's earliest New Testament writings, in fact, a letter motivated by deep concern on the part of the Apostle Paul, having heard of some troubling things, having crept into the belief and practice of these Galatian churches. A threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. False teachers having crept in with a distortion of the gospel. Their message not only stirring up division and, and strife, but leading many to turn away from the one true gospel. Paul's aim in writing this incredibly impassioned letter would be that those in the Galatian churches might find life in the sweetness of freedom, not the bondage that was was being promoted by those false teachers, this false gospel, that they might experience the freedom and joy that that comes not in nullifying grace, but, but relying upon it. Not by diminishing the sufficiency of the cross, but clinging to it. Not by self reliant works of the law, but spirit reliant faith in God. Paul's letter to the Galatians, too, inviting us to sit with and, and steep in its glorious truths that we, like the Galatians, might grow in deeper understanding and appreciation of the truth, the beauty, the hope of the gospel. That's what this series is about. And so with that, if you have a Bible, we'll go ahead and invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to camp out this morning, verses 15 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Feel free to use one of those Bibles during our time together. Take that Bible home with you. If you don't own a copy of the scriptures, we'd be happy to know that you're exploring the, the Bible on your own time as we scatter from places like these. Let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and, and jump in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it doesn't return void. Thank you for the difficult-to-understand passages of Scripture as much as any other passages. Surely, Galatians chapter 3 would have been one of those at the top of the list when Peter said that Paul's writings at times are difficult to understand. this uh, being a, a very complex argument that Paul is laying out. And yet I trust, Lord, as we, as we sit with it, that by your spirit you will awaken our minds to, to see what's in front of us. You'll awaken our hearts to receive it. Spirit of God, would you move in power? Would you give me a feeling sense of the very things I preach as much as anyone else in this room this morning? I pray that we would walk away encouraged, fortified in our faith, convicted where you would have that for us, Lord. Do what only you can do as we sit with your inspired word in front of us. And may it be for your glory and your glory alone and the good and joy of your people and the salvation of the lost. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So at this point in in Paul's letter to the the churches of Galatia, if I can just quickly, briefly try to catch us up to speed. Paul has been incredibly intentional in in defending both his apostolic authority and the authenticity of his message, making plain the divine origin of, of both in the detailing of his conversion and calling as well as the earliest years following his experience on the Damascus Road. We get that right out of the gate. As do we get this expression of astonishment on Paul's part, chapter 1, verse 6, that the Galatians are turning to a different gospel, a distortion of the good news of Jesus Christ. The general argument being that some were insisting that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. Paul declaring that there is no other gospel, that any distortion of the gospel is no gospel, that anyone who would preach a different gospel stands under God's curse. Paul helping us to see in chapter 2, both through Titus and Peter, what it means to live in accordance with the one true gospel. In Titus' case, in not adding circumcision to faith in Christ, Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile who genuinely loved and trusted in Jesus and had an effective, fruitful ministry alongside the Apostle Paul. Proof that God was, in fact, at work among the Gentiles. And with that, that circumcision was not necessary to be counted among God's people. In Peter's case, the hypocrisy of treating Gentile believers as inferior for not being Jewish enough in their keeping of dietary laws when a crowd of Judaizers came to town. Peter's conduct out of step with the truth of the gospel so that he was unsaying in conduct what he was saying in doctrine. Paul called it out as condemnable hypocrisy. A sobering reminder that, that none of us is beyond temptation as it pertains to standing for the truth of the gospel when the approval of others is at stake. Whether it be the compromising of the message of the gospel itself or the decisions we make when we're around those whose approval means most. Paul closing out chapter 2 with the good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The good news that God declares guilty sinners righteous in his sight as a gift of grace. And it's a gift of forgiveness and right legal standing before God that we receive by faith. Faith in the crucified and risen Jesus so that at the moment of our conversion, justification, it's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as pardoned and Jesus' righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight so that when you receive Jesus by faith, his righteousness counts for you as if you, sinner that you are, myself too, had lived the righteous life that God demands. Paul continues to tease out even more in chapter 3 as we saw last week as he again rebukes the Galatians for lending their itching ears to a distortion of the gospel. Paul having preached the true gospel in their synagogues, in their marketplaces, declaring that all are sinners having fallen short of the glory of God and that Jesus died for sin and rose from the grave and that those who trust in him can know true and lasting forgiveness. And they were cut to the Heart by the Spirit, the Galatians were. So that what was once foolishness became for them the wisdom and power of God. As Paul himself had experienced in his own unique way on the Damascus Road, the Galatians, they had no more worked to receive the Spirit than Paul himself had worked to receive the Spirit. Both he and the Galatian believers had received the Spirit not by works of the law, but Paul says, by hearing with faith. And so Paul asks, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse three, chapter three. Paul's point being that we continue the Christian life the way we began the Christian life. Again, not by nullifying grace, but relying upon it. Not by diminishing the sufficiency of the cross, but clinging to it. Not by self-reliant works of the law, but spirit-reliant faith in God. Like Abraham. Abraham the man of faith, whom God promised to bless that he might be a blessing to the nations, all the families of the earth, blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, meaning that by faith, God conferred righteous standing upon him just as God does with any sinner who turns to Christ in faith, regardless of gender, social status, or ethnicity. The Gentiles included in God's plan of, of redemption. Paul declaring that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and who enjoy the blessings promised to Abraham and his offspring. In contrast to those who, who were arguing that to receive the blessings of Abraham, a Gentile had to become a Jew, so to speak, through circumcision. Paul going so far as to declare that, that those who rely on works of the law Stand accursed for failing to abide by all things written in the book of the law. Two, declaring, going back to the end of last week, the good news that Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That he earned the Lord's blessing, the light of the Lord's countenance, having come to fulfill the law by keeping all of its commands. And yet the father made not his face to shine upon the Son on the cross, cursed for our blessing he was. That is for those who trust in him for salvation, who are united to him by faith. Counted as Abraham's offspring in Christ, heirs according to the promise. Which begs a question, namely, what about the covenant that God later made with Moses? Is that not God declaring that we must go beyond Abrahamic faith And add our own self-wrought obedience to the law in order to be worthy of the inheritance? It's this potential objection that Paul addresses as we pick up this morning midway through chapter 3. Verse 15, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, Again, some of the more difficult to understand words of the Apostle Paul. Here reasoning from the the lesser to the greater. In Paul's cultural context, a man-made covenant, it couldn't be annulled. It couldn't be added to once the covenant had been ratified or made valid, verse 15. So it is, Paul says, with any covenant between God and man. That God established his covenant with Abraham, verse 17... Long before the covenant, he established with Moses at Mount Sinai. The covenant with Abraham, one marked by promise, by a God who never fails on his promises. In fact, and we talked about this a bit last week, in enacting his covenant with Abraham, God had Abraham gather several animals and cut them in half and divide the pieces into two groups only then to bring a deep sleep upon abraham and with it a vision of a smoking firepot and flaming torch passing between the pieces the smoking firepot and flaming torch representing god himself a declaration that should god fail on his promises may he be severed in two like those animals cut up and cut off his oath based on the final court of appeal Namely, himself. God essentially said to Abraham, cross my heart, binding himself to his word by his character. Abraham was, was but to, to trust, as are any who would be counted among his offspring. Ultimately, verse 16, trust in the promised Messiah, the descendant and offspring of Abraham through whom God would bless the nations. But one might ask, what what about the covenant that God made with, with Moses? A covenant that came after the promise he made to Abraham. Doesn't that prove that to get the blessing of Abraham, one must now obey the law of Moses? That one must add mosaic works of the law to Abrahamic faith? To which Paul declares, surely not. The Mosaic law was given to Israel at Mount Sinai long after God's promise to Abraham, but it wasn't given as an annulment or an add-on to the original promise. As if God changed his mind in the middle of redemptive history and decided that faith must be supplemented with self-wrought obedience to the law in order to receive the promise. That to get to the, the blessing of Abraham, one must now obey the law of Moses. By no means, Paul declares... The law of Moses as a means of receiving the the blessing of Abraham would go against the very promise God made to Abraham. More than that, it would do away with the promise altogether. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. A God who never breaks a promise nor fails on his promises. Meaning again that That the covenant that God made with Moses wasn't an annulment or add-on to the covenant he made with Abraham. It is and always has been those of faith who are counted sons of Abraham. And who can know and enjoy the blessings promised to Abraham and his offspring. As opposed to those who rely on works of the law, chapter 3, verse 10. And stand accursed for failing to abide by all things written in the book of the law. In the words of one pastor and scholar, salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. To which one might ask, what purpose then does the law serve? If not to make ourselves worthy of the blessing God promised to Abraham and his offspring. It's a question Paul anticipates that one might be inclined to ask, which is why he goes on in verse 19 Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law, Paul says, was added because of transgressions. Meaning not that there were no transgressions before the law, because there were clearly transgressions as far back as our first parents in the garden. Paul understood as well as anyone that that tablets of stone or not the law is written on our hearts and it leaves us without excuse. What, what Paul's saying is that the law was given not to replace the promise to Abraham, but to quicken the promise. To act as a mirror, exposing our sin and rebellion. And with that, our deep need for a savior. As Paul says elsewhere in his writing to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, Paul says, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or as he says it uh, in a bit more expounded way, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. God's purpose was that the law would accent our sinfulness. As an example, a child may have a rebellious heart toward his or her teacher, but that rebellious heart is made visible and plain when given an assignment to blatantly ignore. In that sense, the assignment is like the law, making visible and plain the rebellious heart of the transgressor. Furthermore, Paul says the law actually provokes us to sin increasingly so that sin is not only exposed but aroused by the law. In Paul's words, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness remember when I was pursuing my undergrad, they built a big rec center at our, on our university campus, and I don't know what they were thinking, but they put a giant red button in one of the changing rooms that said, don't push. <laughs> you know who was the first one to push that button? This guy right here. It was like six to eight cop cars got called in, and, and uh, paramedics and everything. The sinful heart hears the word do, and it defiantly declares, I will not. It hears the word don't, and it defiantly declares, I shall. Why the law? To deeply expose the sinful heart in each and every one of us. In the words of one pastor and scholar, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. This was Israel's misappropriation of the law's purpose, which Paul too speaks of in Romans uh, chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Israel sought to prove herself holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. The law is like a mirror in that it reveals the the dirty condition that we find ourselves in as sinners, unclean before a holy God. But none of us, I've used this illustration before, uh, I would envision has ever seen themselves dirty in a mirror as you stand in your bathroom and pulled the mirror off the wall and started scrubbing your face with it to get your face clean. It's not what a what a mirror is for. Mirror is meant to drive you to the sink below to the water. The law is the mirror, showing us that we need cleansing. Jesus is the water who cleanses us from sin and makes us pure before God. The promised offspring of Abraham, Paul says. Promised by God to Abraham directly, verses 19 and 20. Unlike the giving of the law to Israel, put in place through angels by Moses, the intermediary. Again, Paul's way of highlighting the the beauty, the primacy of the promise God made directly to Abraham. A promise from God Himself, no intermediaries. A promise not annulled nor supplemented by the law of Moses. What then, Paul asks, is the the law then contrary to the promises of God, verse 21? And Paul replies, certainly not. As they work together in the economy of God's redemptive plan. Again, the the law was not given to replace the, the promise to Abraham, but to quicken the promise. As Paul says in verse 21, for if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. It exposes our sin and rebellion and with that our deep need for a savior so that rather than stand in opposition to the, The promise of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promised Messiah alone. The the law stands in support of that promise. John Stott, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, he says, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we long for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Paul helps us to see how God's promise to Abraham was a promise confirmed by Moses and fulfilled in Jesus. The Mosaic law, driving people to the Abrahamic promise that they might be counted righteous by faith in Christ. Paul goes on to say in verses 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. The law, Paul says acted for Israel as both a warden and a schoolmaster. That is, until Christ came. As a warden, verse 22, imprisoning everything under sin. Sin slavishly ruling over Israel and provoking the Israelites to sin increasingly. The law too, a a tutor or schoolmaster, which is what the, the language of guardian means in the original Greek. In Paul's day, more than a a teacher, a disciplinarian, a a servant of the family responsible for, for training up the children. Such a person shown in ancient drawings with a rod in hand, meant to keep the kids in line. The false teachers in Galatia, they were they were insisting on on circumcision, failing to see that that such a ceremonial law was never intended to be permanent. So that in one sense, Paul's highlighting the, the temporary role of the law, which functioned in certain ways as a guardian until Christ came. In another sense, through these word pictures, a, a continued emphasis on the laws exposing of sin and rebellion, and with that, man's deep need for a savior. As a warden, revealing the, the shackles in which transgressors find themselves and from which they cannot escape in their own strength. As a tutor or schoolmaster, making visible and plain the rebellious heart of the transgressor through her assignments. This, Paul says, verse 24, that we might be justified by faith. That transgressors might turn in faith to Jesus for salvation. As Paul goes on in verse 25 and on through the end of chapter 3, he says, But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ Paul says then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise faith has come Meaning, verse 24, that Jesus has come. He lived the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live, having come to fulfill the law by keeping all of its commands. He's the lamb without blemish or spot whose righteousness is credited to sinners by faith. He died the death that you and I deserve to die, forever satisfying the law's demands against those who would turn to him in faith. The spotless, sinless lamb sacrificed on behalf of sinners so that in him the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be ours. And with his mercy and forgiveness, all of the benefits of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 verses 33 and 34, for this is the covenant God says that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. As Paul has already hinted at and we'll unpack in greater depth soon enough as we continue to work our way through this letter. The embedding of God's will deep within the hearts of his people by his spirit in the context of a restored relationship with him. Obedience, no longer an obligation, but a joy birthed out of an astonishment that God would move toward us in Jesus by his grace. Run, John, run. The law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's where we're headed in the book of Galatians. In stark contrast to what the false teachers in Galatia were peddling, that this is what it is to know life in the sweetness of freedom. The Gentile believers in Galatia, they were turning when true freedom and joy was right there for the taking into a bondage. True freedom and joy. It's there for anyone who looks to Christ in faith. Again, regardless of of gender, regardless of social status, regardless of ethnicity. Which is not a denial on Paul's part. By the way, the ethnic distinctions between Jew and Greek, nor is it a denial of the distinction between male and female. One of the main points of this letter being that a Greek didn't need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. What Paul's saying is that God's blessing is for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and that we are all one in Christ. That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No second rate citizens in God's kingdom as we're all at the end of the day, sinners adopted into God's family by his grace. Having verse 27, put on Christ like a garment, we who are united to him by faith, robed in his righteousness. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E, ptc.com.